Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. One of the problems in talking about issues with nature-based education and forest forest educators and their philosophies is that there's an argument to be had for really every opinion. Maybe not a good argument for every single one, but there's an argument. There's a reason why people hold certain positions. And this episode is going to be probably a little bit controversial. And if there are people that push back against it, please know that I am 100% open to your interpretation, and I appreciate what you're going to say, whatever that might be. And I'm going to validate it and say, yeah, that's true too. It's okay for things to be true in both directions. That's the piece that I have learned in the last, probably the last 15 years, the lesson that I've seen over and over again. And one of the things that drives me insane is when I see people post online, they post these kind of Children, they don't need to learn the Pythagorean theorem when they should be learning how to grow a garden. And they posit these things as if there's someone out there going, no, no gardening. And they go, you have to learn math. And the thing is, it's a stupid meme because it tries to get traction for their idea, whatever that idea is, whether it's growing a garden, bringing back wood shop learning entrepreneurial skills, whatever it is, but they try to get traction on something else that they just don't value themselves as if, oh, we owned them, those those stupid math people. Meanwhile, we're driving in a car with a cell phone going over a bridge and we're like, if you didn't have the math, you'd be all flying down into a canyon right now and dying a horrible crashed, smashed up death. So it's just stop doing that. Don't post stuff that is, they're they're both equal, right? Like you can have both. You can teach a kid math and you can also teach someone how to grow a garden. They're not mutually exclusive. It's not like they, the only way you could teach somebody gardening is by cutting out math and, and just eliminating that as if that's not important. And I'm just like, come on, why are you doing that? Why? Stop doing it. It's a kind of in that particular instance, it's a way to go, oh, look at those elites. They know math. They really should be learning how to do a garden because that's the real thing. Damn it. Stop messing around. It's like a, a knee jerk thing to hit the elites or hit somebody who's smart. And it, that's just one example. There's a lot of other examples that also go in both ways. But it please stop making these choices and looking at the world in this sort of black and white yin and yang dichotomy. It's not always that way. Both things can be true and we can still have that. So that being said, I'm, I don't even really know what the title of this topic is because I'm in a weird spot where I have tried to write a title. I usually write the title for a spotlight before I get into it because I like base off that, but I've actually, I've written like seven titles and I don't know what it's going to end up being even after I get this recording done, but I wanted to record it anyway. But the main gist of what we're talking about is going to be the power and the benefits of adversity. And I know that this won't be that controversial in the beginning because like most people, they go, oh yeah, we want to have free play. We want to have risky play. We want to have creative time for kids to go out and test themselves, tree climbing and going on rocks and picking up logs and learning the limits of what they can do safely and all that. And so for that reason, you all get it because most of you that are doing nature education with children, if you're including any of those elements into your program, you're creating the opportunities for them to have some adversity. So that's good. And it's good when you're learning about how to do this work If you're going out and you're like, hey, I've been a teacher for 20 years and I'm now going to start doing forest school. Or maybe you're somebody that's, hey, I just had kids. I love this forest school thing. I'm going to get started on it. Or maybe you're somebody that's been doing like outdoor adventure stuff and you're just like, hey, maybe I'll go into schools and offer some programs. There's a lot of different ways that we educators come into the field. and, And again, all those things are valid. 
But sometimes what's interesting that I've, and the things that I've noticed, and I've noticed it a lot in Facebook groups, which are actually a really great place to get information about what people are going through. Because if somebody's like scrolling through Facebook groups and they're just like, oh yeah, let's check it out. Like you look at your feed and you just mindlessly do stuff. And then what's the big effort? You can just hit or hit that you don't like it or whatever. It's like there's minimal amount of effort involved. But if you're actually going to be writing a question or making a, a well-thought-out comment, that means you're engaged. And that being engaged means something because it's saying, hey, I have an opinion. Hey, I've got a thought. Hey, I've got a suggestion. And there's a lot of people in nature-based education groups who will post a post like this. They will say, help, I need help. I just started a program. I'm at this I'm in a wild spot and I just don't know what to do. I don't really know how to do it exactly. How do I set this up? Can somebody help me? Give me some, act I need activities. That's another one. Oh, I need activities for tomorrow because it's going to be snowy. I need activities because it's going to be rainy. I need activities because it's going to be really hot. What can I do? What can I do? And I'm not, if any of you have been listening to this podcast, but you've also posted that, just know that this isn't a judgment against any of those posts. I, in fact, it's me responding to those posts and saying, I think I can help you, but I'm going to, it might be tough love in some ways, but hey, this is free and you can always turn this off if you're getting riled up, but just know that it's not personal and I'm only saying these things to help. But the thing is, is that we are in a place where when we run a nature program, when we run a forest school, when we run a wilderness survival program, we are doing that. We're creating these programs in a harsh environment, in a harsh climate. And the climate is that we are in a culture that is struggling right now on a lot of levels. We're struggling financially, we're struggling with our schooling system that's not quite meeting our needs in many cases. We're struggling with mental health, maybe physical health. We're struggling with just getting time. There's also trauma. There's a lot going on. And we're also struggling with information overload and all this stuff. And so when we are creating our programs, we are in the middle of a situation in which it's difficult and we're trying to respond. The programs we're creating are trying to respond to those difficult situations. And it reminds me of one of my favorite books, one of the earliest books I ever read, which was the book Dune by Frank Herbert. And if you've ever read the book, I'm not talking about the movies, although the movies have their benefits and good things and so forth. But if you actually read the book, the way that the book outlays what is happening is very different than in film. And you really get an understanding of the planet Dune and like just how incredibly harsh that planet is. Like it's just hundreds of degrees in temperature, no water, you know, things that will kill you if you're not paying attention. So there's no water. There's things that will kill you. There are there's very little food because without water, there's very little, not much to eat. And it's like to be able to survive in that climate, it forced the people that live there to be incredibly innovative because their choice was to either innovate or die. That was the problem. It was like, we either figure out how we're going to be able to walk around out in the desert, which is like got this wind blowing and it's incredibly dry and will suck all of our water off. And there's no river or spring or anything else for us to actually replenish that water, in which case you die. So they have to adapt and they, they are forced to create a, a suit that actually recycles their water. They have to create wind traps in the cliffs that bring the wind off of the desert into these cooler earthen tunnels and caves. And then that wind actually condenses the moisture, any moisture that's in the air condenses and then drips drop by drop into these cisterns that they store water in from which they can drink because that's all they have. There's a ton of other things they have. They have like different weapons. They have ways to actually ride the sandworms. They, 
all those things were probably created at great personal risk, incredible amount of investment and time in order to be able to adapt to live under those conditions. And they did. And then, of course, in the book, if you read the book, they are then at that point, like unbelievable uh, force of military aggression and everything. Like they, they are able to channel what they do and how they survive under all those conditions to be superior because of that. Now, I'm not saying that we're in a place where we're going to be superior. That's not my goal in forest education to be superior, but it is in a way because what we're doing when we are trying to create a forest education program for our children or for adults or for anyone really, college students, elderly people, whatever, we're trying to find a way to improve their lives in the midst of incredible social and cultural change and technological change that is currently happening. And we're trying to do something that is difficult. And the problem that I want to say is that we don't really know that we're in that because we're comfortable. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's make a forest school. Hey, that sounds good. Let me run a, a youth program. Let me start a summer camp. Let me start a wilderness survival program. Hey, I like making fire. Let's do a workshop on fire making or tracking or wild edible foods or whatever it is. And you do it and it's awesome. And there's nothing wrong with that. Believe me, that's good. We don't really want to be constantly under a survival mindset and to be in, in, embedded in this like fear-driven kind of situation. However, it's really important to be able to recognize what is happening around you and to be able to see it through various lenses, to be able to see where you're at and then to go, all right, it's like being at the eye doctor. And you're, okay, is it better like this or like this? Is it better like this, number one, or number two, or how about number three? And I'm not talking about different types of focus. <laughs> I'm, talking about, I'm talking about how we see the world through different lenses, through basically various philosophies or various situations, and being able to use those worldviews in a way to help us to get through certain things. So what do I mean by this? Like, honestly, if, if you can look at the world in, a, in that harsh environment and say, hey, this is actually really scary and painful, and this is just so terrible, and I'm really anxious, and I just, I don't know if I can do it, that's okay, because it is hard. And in our culture, we are very attuned to try to give people, things that make things more comfortable. We want a car that has heated seats. We want a car that goes, hey, we got a car that has heated mirrors so that if you get ice on your mirror, it'll melt it off. They even have some cars have a little uh, windshield wiper on your side mirrors so that you can, you don't have to open your car door and wipe it off if it gets snowy or salty or whatever on there, which is, don't get me wrong. Like these things aren't bad things inherently. However, it does create in our culture a kind of underlying principle, which is like the goal is for us to have life to be as easy as possible and to be buffered or protected from the harsh reality of what might be going on outside, outside of our everyday lives or our, our understanding or, or our worldview. And I know that people who come from other countries where this isn't the primary goal or the primary drive, many of them look at Americans or they look at modern Europeans or whatever, and they have a sort of disdain for that because they just look and go, yeah, you really, you guys are missing out. You're not really seeing the real picture here. Now, their picture isn't necessarily the real picture. So I don't know what the real picture is. But what I'm going to say is that when we are in a situation in which we are going to be struggling, that struggle is, is both hard and good. It's like both bad and good. It's, better, it's both difficult and also like the source of our greatest reward. And th this is what will drive our innovation. The whole point of us offering whatever we're offering to people as nature educators is to give someone an alternative 
to what they are currently experiencing. And the reason we're currently experiencing that is because we're probably in a crisis. If the public schooling system in America was everything that we ever wanted it to be, we wouldn't probably exist. We wouldn't need to offer a forest school program for preschoolers and kindergarten. We wouldn't need to offer a middle school like youth program or summer camps or whatever. We wouldn't need it because they would just be already doing it all and it would be all awesome. The reality is that there are these programs and these systems that we have are in place. They are struggling and they are struggling to change and to adapt to the pace of what is going on in our culture. And that's, it's critical. Like we're seeing this. And the reason that a lot of these programs are successful is because of the crisis that's unfolding. I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who are educators who say, Hey, I put out my programs. I thought maybe I could take five or six people or 10 people or 12 people. And all of a sudden I have 30 and I have a waiting list. And they're just like, whoa, I was not prepared for this. I have heard that over and over again. Maybe not everywhere. If you're someone that's, I'm living in rural Nevada with a population of five, you might not have a waiting list with five people on it because you're in a rural area. But for people that live in suburban areas or in fairly close to modern populated areas, many of the programs that are being offered are filling very quickly because people are looking for alternatives because they have a need. And the need is typically parents who are struggling and they're watching their children struggle in a system with, that is like draining the, the light up behind their eyes. Like it's draining their joy. It's draining their curiosity. And it's, you're, they're seeing their kids in the process of like shutting down and it being in a protective zone, going into your shell, whatever you want to call it. And then having mental anxiety and stress as a result of that, because they don't really know what's going on. They just know that they are feeling really anxious and sad and scared or whatever. So for the parents, it's a crisis. And they are then responding and looking for alternatives. So it is, in a way, kind of life and death. Not life and death, literally. But it is, but in a way, figuratively, it really is in a way life and death because they know that the progression, if they see what is happening to their child in preschool and kindergarten and first grade, they know that there's a chance that their kid might not come out of it on the other side of high school. But by the time they get to high school age or maybe younger, I don't know, there is a very big fear. There, the rise in the level and severity of mental illness is getting higher and higher. And it's incredibly important that we pay attention to that, to the data. Not, I'm not talking about just, oh, in general, like, oh, that'd be, that's terrible. I'm saying there is real data to support this. And people that are in the know are worried. So it is a high stakes situation right now. And when you look at a parent and the parents, hey, I don't really know how I can afford to do this, but I'm going to find a way to get my kid in your program because it might literally be life and death for them. That's real for them. So the problem for us sometimes is that we don't really see that. We just know that a parent's there, they get the money and we got the kid and we're, and next thing you know, we're making mud pies and looking at woolly bears and having a good time. And the program itself overall is generally pretty good if you're in one of those kinds of programs. But here's what the situation is. When you are in a large organization, when you have a company, when you have a system like the educational department, or you have a large company, or you have like a, just any kind of big system, even like a big family, when you have a big family and you're all trying to decide where to go for dinner, it can be hell. Like it literally is like hell for me. I can't stand sitting around and taking two hours to figure out where we're going to go for dinner. It's just, everyone's wish we could go here. We could go there. Somebody puts out a good idea. You get three people that agree. But then there's four or five people that are like, eh, I don't know if I feel like that. And then, then, and then no decision is made and it just takes time and time. And by the time everybody decides at that point, I've already called Domino's and Domino's rolls up and it's got, Hey, we got five pizzas. We don't have to go anywhere. So 
I don't go to Domino's or do that, but I'm just saying as an example, like they can't respond because it's, there's a lot of decision-making and what should we do? And they also have a lot of rules and I'm not picking on large organizations. This is the dichotomy thing, right? I'm not saying that large org or organizations are bad, that I'm not saying that everything about all of those things are bad because they're not, but they, what is bad is that they are very slow to respond and understandably so. You don't necessarily want to change everything in a big company every three weeks. Like it's really expensive to make those changes. So they are understandably reluctant to make sweeping changes without an incredibly sure decision process that will, whatever, please everybody, check all the boxes, do all the stuff, right? That's why you can't pick what's good for dinner. Cause somebody will go, what about Thai food? And then somebody else will go, I hate Thai food. I'm allergic, blah, blah, blah. So then you're like, okay, that's out. So what happens is that that organization, that large group is slow to react. And when they're slow to react, people die, people struggle, people, I was in there starving, waiting to go to dinner. And so I wasn't literally dying, but I was dying inside because I was like, I'm really hungry. Everything sounds good. I'm going to be in the car. Everybody get in the car. But we couldn't get in the car because everyone had to decide. So again, the point is it takes time and that time responsiveness does have a price and it is what it is. And because say right now, modern schooling and a lot of our modern institutions are having trouble responding therefore we are, therefore we have an opening for smaller more nimble organizations and efforts and initiatives to jump in and begin to take hold and to try things this happens all the time in business because you have like large companies like Pepsi and Coke and all that and then all of a sudden there's another product that comes out that is suddenly really popular I remember when Nantucket Nectars came out and it was like a huge deal out in the East Coast because they were these really good juice drinks and they were really popular. And I was just like, wow, these things are going to compete with Coke or Pepsi. And sure enough, like after they worked really hard to make all these things and do a really good job and they increase their bottling and do all their things, they got bought out by Coke or Pepsi. And when they got bought out, then I don't know if I've ever seen one again. They just canned. And the, meanwhile, the founders walked away with a lot of money and everybody that worked really hard in that whole industry is now out of a job and having to look for other things. So in business that happens, but they will either take out the competition or they will absorb it and go, we want to get those profits and we also want to distribute it nationally. It can go both ways. But the point I'm trying to make with this is that it happens all over the place, all the time. It happens, again, it happens in families where you have everything in the family's working for 85% of the people in the family. I'm talking about a big family. And then there's one kid or two kids that just, it doesn't quite work. Or someone in the family, it's not working for anymore. And then it becomes this huge deal, right? Because you're like, you're the black sheep. It's not right you don't believe what we believe and you're having trouble and you want us to all be vegan or you want us to change what we've been doing. And then these are things that we're accustomed to. And it creates these waves and those waves go back and forth and it causes everybody to get all freaked out because what happens when that happens is that it's rocking the status quo and the comfort zone that everyone has. Everyone's just settled in and went, yeah, all right. Thanksgiving hasn't been perfect for me, but I'm not comfortable being uncomfortable. <laughs> so I don't want to rock the boat. I'm going to go there. I'm going to tell everyone that grandma's pumpkin pie is really good, even though I can't stand it. Whatever it is, right? You're going to just tolerate a certain amount of discomfort until you can't tolerate anymore. For various reasons, that's one of the institutes of change. That's one of the uh, instigators of it. Uh, I'll give you one example, though, that's an exception. In our country and in other countries too, there is a exception here where like the medical profession has literally had to embrace new innovative models and new innovative treatments and new innovative practices as a 
by design, not by default, but they have to build it in. And why is that? So like, why would they do that? It's really not that hard to figure out. If they don't, people die, right? If they go, we've used this cancer treatment for the last X number of years, 30 years, and it's been okay. And yeah, the nurses, they don't want to have to change that bag of whatever it is from this to this, or we don't want to buy this big machine and all that because it's just, it might make them upset to learn a new technique and all that. No, no. They literally, people are going to die if they don't get these new treatments, if they don't get, if we don't change to respond to what people need. And that's literally the only reason they exist is to help people who are in need, who absolutely have to have that help. And you can say a lot of things about the medical profession. You can say a lot of things and a lot of things can be true in, across the board, positive and negative. But I can tell you right now, as an organization, they will go, hey, here's a new study that came out. Hey, here's a new practice. And I remember talking to doctors where they went, hey, we used to do this when someone had a heart attack and we did it for 25 years. It might have been related to giving them aspirin or, oh, this is the standard thing that we did. And then they just went, hey, the data actually doesn't support it. We've done a bunch of studies. It doesn't support it. It's actually better to do this other thing. And so they will very quickly within as quick of a, of a period of time, they can actually respond to that. And they're responding for two reasons. One is they want to get better outcomes. And then the other one is that they also have fear because if they don't give that new treatment and it was available and they just didn't bother to do it because they were like too comfortable, they will get sued. And so there's that pressure too. Right. So you see what I'm talking about with pressure. They have a they have an immediate understanding of need and the life and death high stakes situation that they're in. And they also have pressure on the other side, which is if you don't do what we need so that people don't die, we are going to make you pay. Now, that's not really necessarily true. It's true in like the car industry, right? You can't make a car and go, we don't need to put all these airbags and safety stuff in because it was good enough for the Model T. It's probably just fine and, and we'll just do that. We're not, we're comfortable. We don't want to change our factory or whatever. No, that's not going to happen because they're being required to be safe. And that's why it's a big deal when a, a car realizes, oh no, the car company goes, hey, we made a mistake. They will have a recall. It will cost them hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars to fix every one of those cars that has that defect, they will contact you. They will search out your, your VIN number, find out who you are, send you a card and say, please bring your car in because they, number one, are forced to, and they also are trying to make sure that with the product that they have that we use every day is safe. I don't know why this doesn't happen in the educational system. And I don't know what it would take to make that happen. I don't personally want teachers to get sued because that's not what I'm talking about. But certainly the system could be sued somehow or have some kind of pressure that would then force them to use the discoveries that we've been making for the last freaking 50, 100 years that they're not actually integrating into their system. In fact, there actually seems to be doing the opposite in some cases, but I don't know. What do I know? I'm not a teacher. And again, I'm not picking on teachers in any way, not in any way. I don't even care if you're like the lunch lady from 50 years ago who was like chain smoking while she was making pan pizza for us that we had in 1978. I'm not talking, I don't care. I'm not going to be picking on any of those people. I'm just saying that the system as a whole is very, very reluctant to change and is will not actively integrate a lot of this new data that's coming in. Some of them are. And, and if you are, man, right on. Good for you. Thank you. But right now, the data says that 50% of teachers in the first five years of their teaching practice leave the profession. They quit. They don't make it to five years. 50% of teachers. Right now, 250 children in preschool 
are either expelled or suspended every day in the United States. 250 every day. And 50% of them are black or brown youth, black or brown males. That's it. That's Those are the statistics. That's the data. Those are hard numbers. Yeah, you could probably go in there and go, Rick, actually, it's uh, 247 or something. I don't know. That's what I've seen in the national data statistics. That is a real number, and it's growing. Because two years ago, it was 200 kids a day. Now it's 250. Are things changing? If you're expelling a preschooler, like what do you have to do to get expelled as a preschooler? What kind of behaviors are you having? What Shouldn't we be responding to that and have being proactively responding? Or are we just going, hey, kids are getting worse. Uh, let's just get rid of them. <laughs> let's just send them home. Maybe that is the answer. I don't know. But, but just sending them home isn't probably going to make it better. And when the number keeps going up and up, you can say, all right, the problem's not going away. In fact, it's getting worse. So the point that I'm using with this data, and these are real numbers, is to say that we are in a high-stakes situation as educators. And we are walking into this like the desert in Dune. And we have things that we can do to try to have a positive impact. I know that's why we're doing it. Some people might just do it and go, hey, I'll hang out with some kids and make fires and build shelter. That sounds fine. That's fine. But if you're the person that's actually doing all the work to try to run this thing, you're probably not doing it because you're going to get bags and bags of cash. You're doing it because you really love it and you believe in the mission. So let's talk about that. So what are one of the biggest advantages that we have? One of the biggest advantages is that we're small and we aren't necessarily burdened with all of these regulations and stipulations of what we can or cannot do on a on any given day. If kids, if we want to say in preschool or even in our summer camps or whatever, if we just go to, hey, you guys are going to be having like three hours or four hours of free play, and that's what you guys are going to do, whatever that might look like, you can do that. And as long as you keep them safe and you adhere to certain guidelines to keep them safe, keep them fed, and parents are happy, kids are happy, you're good to go. So you have a tremendous amount of freedom. You can spend that time learning everything about ancestral skills. You can learn about biology. You can learn about history and math and science and creative writing and, and art and all kinds of things. Whatever you all want to do that is exciting to all of you that also gets results, we can do that. And we don't have to adhere to a lot of the, the rules that are that teachers are subject to where they have to I can't even talk about nature education if somebody says to me hey Ricardo could you work with us the the second thing they say is we should be able to match this to the syllabus they always are according to the syllabus blah 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 and I'm just and then they'll say yeah I'm wondering how we could design the program to match the syllabus and I'm always just who the hell cares I know they care because that's what every teacher is obsessed with guess who's obsessed with the syllabus not the teachers whoever's up above them is going, this is what has to happen, blah, blah, blah. Let me tell you, those people that are sitting behind us telling us about the syllabus don't know what it's actually like on the front lines. And they don't know what we're going through and they don't really understand the high stakes. And so they're just running around with the syllabus thinking that's going to be the answer. And we know it's not. But that's one of our advantages. That's why it's our advantage. We can try things. We can move. We can change. We can grow. Whatever we need to do, with new data, we can do it. And I'm telling you, like, that is a massive advantage. And I don't know if we're always taking advantage of that. I don't know if we're really getting the full impact of how valuable that is. And I don't know if this would be true in the UK. If you're, say, running a forest school and you're in Ireland, you may be very limited in terms of like how much freedom you actually have because. I'm not 100% sure what those what the requirements are for that because it is a little bit more systematized there. However, what I am going to say is, at least in America and probably in a lot of other ways, there's a lot of gray areas in which we're like, hey, as long as we do these things, we're okay, we're good. If you have some gray area in there, please use it, innovate, please try things. Do whatever you can to make a difference and see 
and test things and gather as much information and data as you can. You know what? Go out and do some poetry with the kids, recite poems, get them excited about learning and about words and about whatever, increase their vocabulary. Like it doesn't have, you don't have to just do bushcraft. Okay. You can do math. You can do some type of cool science stuff. You can do incredible art things. Obviously you can do all of that, but I'm just saying, please try new things. Try stuff that you've never heard of before, or maybe you've heard of it once happening somewhere in Australia or in the Philippines or wherever. Give it a shot. Do what you can respond to what's going on. I remember at one point I was working with a business coach for a while and she she was talking to me about stuff. And one of her big things for me was she was saying like, Rick, you do these summer camps, you do all this stuff, but because you have so many things going on, you're really, you're probably going to always struggle in a way because you just, your attention is all over the place. So you've got timber framing, you got workshops you're doing, you got summer camps you're promoting, you got school groups and just tons and tons of things. And she just said, you got to really ideally shrink it down to one thing. And that's always been a trouble for me, a, a str struggle, I should say. That's always been a struggle because I think that my ADHD has always been very dopamine-seeking behavior and situations. And having there being a lot of switching around is good for dopamine for me, but bad financially. And I remember at one point she was just like, I'm going to give you a challenge. She goes, I need you to, I need you to make $1,000 by tomorrow. And I was like, what? She's listen, she goes, you believe in a lot of things. You tell yourself a lot of stories. You have, every time I talk to you about something, you have a story about it. You have a, a response that of why you either can't do it or why you might do something else or whatever. And she goes, you need to make a thousand dollars. I'm not going to coach with you anymore unless you can make a thousand dollars by tomorrow. And you need to have that thousand dollars in your pocket in whatever. And she just said, figure it out. And I was just like, what? And I'm like, are you going to help me? And she's no, I'm not going to help you. And I, so I spent like an hour after she talked to me about this and I was just like really initially really upset because I was just like, I can't believe she's doing this. I'm paying her a bunch of money and she's like forcing me, blah, blah, blah. And so then I felt spent some time after being angry. I felt, then I felt sorry for myself, but then that was very short because I just suddenly kicked in and said, I'm not going to lose the investment I'm making in this person. And maybe I should just trust her and just figure it out. Instead of having all these emotional responses that don't actually solve the problem, what if I just solve the problem? And so I went home, I, I went back to my house and I pulled out my laptop and I went, okay, what can I do? And one of the things that she always would say is just sell something. Just sell something. I need you to understand that you can sell and that you can get out there, that you have things that you can do. It, you are creative, that you there's an infinite amount of creativity that you have inside of you at all times. And I actually have a course that I had created with my friend Jeff Eckhouse called the Hawk Circle uh, Earth Skills Correspondence Course. And it was basically a like a 10-block program that kind of took you through various stages of learning about wilderness survival, learning about fire making, learning about these things. And it was a home study kind of thing, similar to the Kamana program that was run through like the Wilderness Awareness School. I don't know what they're calling it now. I think they're changing the name or do, I don't know what's happening with that. But that was a big naturalist training program. And I, we had created ours, but we never really got it off the ground. And so I just sat there for a while. I was like, oh man, what do I do? What do I do? And then I just thought, I've got boxes of these courses in my office. So I just went on my computer. I, this is, it's got to be like eight years ago. And I just wrote out there and said, I've got 10 of my courses. They usually sell for 400 bucks. I'm selling all 10 of these. I'm going to put them in the mail to everyone, anyone that wants it. But I'm going to sell 10 of these and it's a hundred dollars each. And, and, but it's only for today. Like it's only going to be for today. That's it. And so I just made that one post and then I shared that. I think I shared it on like my Hawk Circle group and Facebook and I, the Instagram didn't exist, of course. So it was like, whatever. 
So I shared that and I just put that out and I just said, hey, if any of you have been thinking about it, I had some photos that I'd taken of it and everything. And I just was like, hey, this is available. If you want it, it's a hundred bucks. I had 15 people that I had 10 people that immediately messaged back and said, we want in. And then there was five more people that went, hey, is there any way I could come in? And then even three days later, there were still people that were then suddenly seeing my post and going, hey, I want one. So I think in the end, I made like $2,200 over the course of five days. But I, ha I definitely had people that sent me money immediately and I met my goal. And then I had to package all those up and send them out. And, and it was really exciting because I just, I'd never really thought of it that way in terms of, oh, could I just create something? Now, I had already created that. So that it isn't quite the same in some ways. But in a lot of ways, what she was doing was saying, I'm going to give you this necessity and then I'm going to have you get out there and promote. And so it was a good deal for those folks because they were getting this course at a price that they were like, oh my gosh, this would be really awesome to have this resource. And I was getting something because I was actually having movement in my sales and also in my brain was starting to understand that the, a lot of the limitations that I was putting on myself were self-inflicted walls and rules that were not actually real. And that was really helpful. So entrepreneurial mindsets are really awesome. They're very similar to where we are because they're basically saying, what's working? What's, can we evaluate what we're doing? If, and then how can we respond? Like those boxes sat in my office for three years and I hardly sold any of them. And every now and then I'd make a post and I'd sell two. But then at a certain point, you just go, just sell them, just get rid of these, not get rid like you want to throw them away, but get them out into the hands. They're not doing any good in my office. And so that was the lesson was that she was saying was make a decision and then, and respond to what's going on. What is the message that's happening? And then move on, keep moving forward and keep innovating and keep ch making changes and grow, right? So she's basically saying over and over again to me, one of the, your problems is you don't make a decision and then you just sit and then it just, everything kind of smolders and then you complain or you get, uh, you start to make up stories of why this can't happen or why you're struggling or whatever and why it's not your fault and why it's the economy or it's this or it's that. And I'm going to tell you, please don't do that. It's, we need help sometimes to get out of our own heads, but this is the piece that's really key. It's very similar in a lot of ways to our situation Another book that I read when I was really young was called The Empire and the Foundation, like the Isaac Asimov. Their book, I forget the name of it. Maybe it's maybe it was just called The Foundation. I don't know. But anyway, Isaac Asimov wrote this book about this guy that could foresee human populations and their decisions and kind of interpret into the future mathematically. And he basically was like the universe, the empire that we have with this like intergalactic center with all of the, all the resources of like thousands and thousands of star systems. He saw that it was going to fall, that it was going to collapse. And so they exiled him and his, they didn't like hearing that. So they exiled him and, and his like small team to a planet on the edge of the, on the edge of the outer rim with almost no resources. And they basically were out there and they were just like, okay, we no longer are players in the giant empire. The empire is collapsing, but we are going to then be out here and try to carry on our work. As soon as flow of like money and resources and food stopped, because eventually it stopped because the empire couldn't sustain that, they were on their own. And at that point, they had to innovate. They had almost no mineral resources. They very little um, they didn't have natural resource. They just had, they had all this knowledge. They had saved the knowledge that had been stored from the, the empire, imperial galactic, whatever. And so that's all they had like on Dune. And so they had to innovate. And so they were able to make like spaceships that were very small, but that could do amazing things. They could make weapons, they could make tools, but instead of making these like massive factories, they made those tools really tiny. And so everything was like miniature. And so then they could create like a trading empire that because they had this technology and then they could trade that technology 
and those tools for resources. And so they began to survive and do well. This is one of the reasons that we're in this situation because you have to have that need. If the need isn't there, then there isn't this drive and the need is what creates change. It creates possibility. It creates creativity, right? It it forces you to become creative. I know we've talked a lot about, um, I've talked a lot about this through like science fiction stories, but this is true in wilderness survival. You have to figure out how are you going to make it when you're on a camping trip and something breaks, when somebody forgot something. You have to innovate. You have to make your own utensils. You have to figure out what you're going to do for tent poles because somebody lost them or they broke. You're going to have to figure out whatever it is you have to do. I remember a story once of a guy that was up in the Arctic and he had a sled that they had used and it they were going over a bunch of ice and it hit a certain patch of ice and one of the runners on the sled broke and they were miles and miles away, dog sled and everything. And they were miles and miles away from any kind of help and support. And this guy was just panicking because, oh no, what are we going to do? I guess we're screwed. And his guide or his friend, whoever it was, basically just sat there for a little while and just thought and thought and then just went, oh, okay. And he... He found something. I don't know what it was. It might have been like paper. I think this guy had a bunch of papers and he took these papers and he like layered it with water that was still not frozen. And he kept folding the papers and then layering them over and on under on the either side of where the sled was broken. And then he began lashing that with strips from like one of his parkas. And he took all this, these flat strips and he kept like getting them wet and then wrapping it, getting wet and wrapping it and then coating it with ice. And it wasn't like the perfect repair, but he would have never thought to solidify that with ice and paper and some rawhide. And they made it back. And he just was like, wow, I never would have thought of that. And this other guy was like, oh, yeah, no, it's no big deal. He never was panicked. And he basically just trusted his ability to figure out a way to make it work. Because in the Arctic, they have no resources and they have to figure it out. So if you're somebody right now, if you're somebody that goes, hey, I've got this like uh, class I'm doing, I've got this program and hey, we, we're in this section of woods, we don't have this, we do have that, What can somebody help me? I'm going to tell you, no, no one is probably going to be able to help you unless you are actually able to help yourself. If you go to a group and then think someone in that group is going to drop whatever they're doing and I'm sure they're busy, they're probably not going to go in there and go, hey, let me give you my best advice. Now, if you're paying them, they will. But if they're not being paid, you're going to get either flippant responses or you're going to get like someone who's well-intentioned who just maybe doesn't quite get it. And then you're going to spend a, and waste a lot of time arguing back and forth in there about what can you do and what should you do and what about this. And you might have reasons why you can't do whatever it is. And I'm going to tell you there's a couple things that you want to think about if that's you. Don't be afraid to change. If you're in a place where you're like, oh, no, I'm in this place where I'm able to do this program, and guess what? It's hard, and it's I don't have everything I need. It's not as ideal. You either have to make it work and figure it out, or you have to move. That's true in wilderness survival. If you go somewhere and you're like, I don't have any food, there's hardly any plants or anything for insulation for a shelter, there's no firewood, there's no this, there's no that, then get out of there. You just got to get out of there. You need to get on the move. You got to throw your stuff in your backpack and keep moving. You have to drag it in a sled behind you. You got to put it in your car, like move. If you're struggling in your spot, in what you're doing, then get out of there. If it's that bad, don't wait around. Just move. Or if nothing else, start talking to people in your area. Don't ask somebody on Facebook who's in Australia, hey, what can I do? Hey, or get somebody from Norway or whatever. We can't help you. We're not there. Talk to people in your immediate community. Hey, everybody that's sending my kids to you, sending kids, if your kids are coming to, to my program needs a better location. We absolutely have to have it. We need it in, in the next month. Who has a lead? This is what we need. 
get specific about what you want, what you need, and then start going for that. Don't settle for some crappy thing and then go, uh, maybe I can make it work. Maybe you can. And if you can, give that a shot, but then make a decision. If it's too much, if it's too hard, go somewhere else. Okay, please don't be afraid to change. In fact, you should be trying to change often. You should always be thinking, is there a better place that we could do? Is there a better way we could do this? Is there something else we could do? Because you want to be able to continue to innovate. Okay. The forest school model that is being shared everywhere, that's a great model. Would anybody here say that it's perfect and that it doesn't need to change and that it's not, that it's going to probably be here for in 150 years? Is it going to still be the same model? Probably not. Now, some elements of it probably will be always there. Absolutely. And is it a good model? It's great. It's the best model we have probably for the majority of people. But I know people, because I've been talking about on the podcast, people that are saying, hey, we're bringing in therapists who are trained to train us. And we are also getting more one-on-one aids so that we can work with people who have autism. So we can work with people who are struggling with other mental illness, with anxiety, behavior problems, whatever. Like we're willing to change to throw a lot of new things. I'm not saying that current four schools models are saying, don't do that. That's not what I mean. But what I'm saying is we're trying to respond. And there are people that are responding and getting innovative. Like for example, out in Australia, Arita Ferentz, she works with a community. She has like hundreds of different cultures all in this like incredible mixing pot out there, melting pot of all these cool people. And they're all trying to figure out how to make a living and be there in this community. And so she's created a community-based program that's working and serving needs and doing more than just getting people outside, but really focusing a lot on building connections and less loneliness, less depression and all that, not just for the children, but for everyone involved. Because yeah, you can take the kids out for three hours but then they're going to come back to the same environment, right? So we need to create a sense of hope. We need to create growth. All of that's happening because she's willing to change and adapt and go, hey, what is it that we are doing? What do I know? How can I make this different? What could we try? And that's what is needed in this. You go to your spot, your forest school area, and you're like, hey, yeah, I don't know. Let me see. Let me see. Please. Give yourself permission to just really dream. Trust yourself. Look at what you have. If you have a lot of grass, use grass. Use Figure out what you can do with that. If you have a lot of snow, like up in the Arctic, figure out what you can do. If you have a lot of trees or thicket or whatever, forest schools are happening and nature programs are happening all over. They're happening in jungles. They're happening in deserts. They have a whole bunch of forest education stuff that's going on in deserts in the Middle East that are, it's desert. It's not forest because there's no trees, but it's like desert school. And, and it's awesome. They have a beach, what they call beach kindy out in Australia, where kids are out in the kind of coastal beach environments. It's really cool how this is changing and innovating. And please don't think that you can't also be part of that innovation. And I'm just going to ask you, what resources do you have? What, not just what resources do you have personally, but what resources do you know other people around in your area? Ask them, get them to come out and look at your property and help you see it through their eyes. Ask for help with parents. It's okay to admit that you don't necessarily know all the answers, but be willing to explore those questions and explore possible answers and just keep being open to new input, new data, and change. The the necessity and the high-stakes situation that we're in is what is really being called to us right now. How do we respond? And if we start getting comfortable and just sink into, this is what we do, that's okay. It, that's okay if that if you get into that a little bit, but just remember, you got to keep a part of you that's separated outside of that and to say, yeah, but what about this? What other things am I seeing that isn't comfortable? Where are things hard? 
and then decide what you want to do. You have to bring this type of consciousness into your practice. You've got to know who do you serve? Who do you want to serve? How do you serve? You've got to know what is working, what's not working. Get firm boundaries around that. I know that this happens sometimes in a programs where we work with children, where you'll be doing all this good stuff. And then somebody comes in and goes, Hey, I've got a kid who blank, whatever it is, has something. And then at that point you go, Oh, okay. Uh, okay, here we go. Here's our situation. Let's see if we can serve this person. And then you get, and, and maybe that's a good innovate innovation thing to try that, but maybe it isn't. And for example, I'll just give you an example. If you were a forest school and you went, hey, we work with diabetics. We work with kids that have diabetes and we work with them and we do all this work. And then parent comes in and goes, hey, my other son, my, my, my kid has leukemia or they have some other really deteriorative disease that's really threatening. That's a light, high stakes situation. You wouldn't go, hey, let's put that child into our diabetes program and then let's see if we can then figure out how to help them. And let's see if we can, maybe they could take this glucose test and maybe we can. No, you're not going to do that for someone who's actually got cancer or something really that's separate from what you do. You would then go, hey, you should go to these people over here who work with kids that have cancer because we can't help you until you get that under control. So it's okay to have boundaries because the boundaries are there to help you and to help those people. Sometimes when you take people in because you're like, I'm a nice person, I really want to help, I believe I can help, I, we suddenly start thinking like, I could help everyone. No, you can't. You can't help everyone. I have had parents try to drop off kids that were like psychopathic. They were like, my kid's really angry all the time. And he's been like in the backyard killing frogs with his bare hands and doing weird stuff. And I'm just like, that, don't send that kid to my camp. I can't help that kid. That kid needs something different. He doesn't need to just go tracking and then make a fire. He needs actual support for what's going on inside of him. And I don't know what that is, but don't bring that kid to my camp. And they're like, but blah, blah, blah. But in your brochure, you said blah, blah, blah. I know what I said in my brochure, but that does not mean that I said I will take kids that have a severe mental illness or whatever. Come on. You know what I'm saying? But the parent is desperate. So they're going to ask. They're going to try because they're desperate. They're going to try to do anything they can to get anything. And they will have, be in a delusional state and they will go, no, my kid doesn't have, my kid doesn't have cancer. And you're like, no, they do. They do. They have those things. Sometimes parents will say, oh, my kid is horrible, blah, blah, blah. And they get there and they're great. And you're just like, yeah, I don't really see. We're not having the problems that your kid had at school. That's true. But that doesn't mean that you're a cure-all doctor who can take care of someone who's really, really sick. And you have to have boundaries and you have to be smart about that. And you have to know your limits and you need to know what your choices are and you need to choose and make a decision and then say, this is who we work with. This is what we what is working for us with these kids, and these are the thing outcomes we're getting, and these are what their outcomes we're getting right now. In ten years from now, we might not be getting those outcomes. It might be something else. We don't know, but you need to make sure in your programs that you're bringing a lot of this type of these stakes, the life and death kind of needs, and and the fact that you can be responsive and that you can make changes and that you can adapt and that you can try things. This is what we need to do. This is why Angela Hanscom, who is doing the barefoot and balanced occupational therapy with children outside, that was born out of necessity, out of a need and out of a willingness to be innovative. And she got pushed into that because her kids got sent home or just were not thriving in public school and she had to homeschool them. And then she started like putting them involved, getting involved in different elements that, you know, was for, she was forced into that. She, you know, I think she probably would have been okay just being an OT and doing her thing and having her kids in school, like of everybody else. But and no, she, because she was then homeschooling and because she's also an OT and because she was like getting them involved in nature stuff. And then she suddenly started putting two and two together. And then 
boom, now she has like this whole timber nook thing and she's got trainings and we got people out there doing like nature therapy outside with kids in OT. It's phenomenal. And she's making a movement because she is able to respond and she was able to then work, do the hard work of putting it all together. And that's where our payoff will be in the long run is that we, we have to keep being innovative and we have to look at and embrace the fact that it's, you got to get uncomfortable. You got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I can't tell you how many times Tom Brown used to say, I'm paraphrasing, but he would just say, yeah, comfort. If you're getting too comfortable, it's, you're going to be a lot unhappier down the road because you're not going to be able to respond in time. You have to be willing to see, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable at times in order to then get more comfortable down the road or to improve your odds of being successful at what you're doing. And we have to get really good at those skills. And I don't blame you. If you are like trying to do your forest school thing and you're like, oh, I don't know, is this land good? If you haven't done it enough, if you haven't done it before and you're taking the training, then look, find some money Go to other school. Go visit 10 other forest schools and see what their setup is. Please don't ask people over and over again on Facebook, or, hey, everybody, show us your setup. Yeah, that's cool. You can do that. But you can also just go to other schools, drive there, help them out for two days, stay in a hotel, whatever you have to do to get the information that you need. Do the research. Do the work figure it out. Okay. Please. Number one, if you do that, you're going to have, you're going to be in a good networking thing because if you go there and volunteer and help and you're like, Hey, I've been trained. I'd love to help you for a few days and just see what you guys do. It's going to make your program so much better. Cause you're going to go, Hey, I went to five different places and I learned a ton of stuff at each one. And now I'm going to bring all that I learned into my program. So go do that. Don't look at that as, oh, Rick's telling me I got to spend some money and I got to drive and uh, I got to leave my family. But Stop doing that. Don't complain. Just go, damn, that's a really good idea and it will pay off. And will it be uncomfortable in that short term? Yeah. I'm not saying you have to do it every two months in a row for the whole month, but for four days, once a month, go there four different times over four months and then integrate that into your program. And if you do that, you're going to make a lot of friends. You're going to see their, how they do it. You're going to get to know them. You're going to get to hear about their journey. You're going to get a connection with them. You're going to be able to ask them questions. You're, they're going to ask you questions. It's not going to be all just one way, but you're going to be creating a sense of community with somebody else that's also a leader. It's going to help you feel more like a leader and you're going to feel more confident. Guess what? Confidence is what will then help you with sales you will then fill your program. You will be able to hire the right people, all of it. You might even get stuck for a week and maybe one of the schools goes, hey, yeah, we'll send you an educator your way for three days while that person's gone. No problem. We'll help you out. But all of these are only going to be possible if you're willing to do the work. You know what? Like when I was doing wilderness stuff, I was like constantly making bows and arrows. I would try, I would spend hours making a bow and it would snap at the end of it. You know, after getting it all done, months of working on it, and then I pull it back after 10 shots and it would just blow up. I'd have arrows that would just go, that were too flimsy. I would have arrows that were too fat. I would, you have to experiment in order to innovate and you have to find a way to absorb the cost of that. Obviously, I couldn't make those bows out of like solid gold and spend them. I didn't have like endless amounts of resources but I found a way to do it anyway. Tom Brown, when I went to Tom Brown's school, he was the most expensive wilderness survival school out there. And people would go, oh, he's so expensive. He's so expensive. And I was just like, you're crazy. I would have paid twice what I paid. I didn't want to pay twice, but I'm just saying I would have paid twice because the amount of information and the passion and the support I got when I went there at that time was really important to me and it innovated and pushed me. So what's the value of that? It's a massive value. So please, please, 
If you're in that situation where you're in there, don't be afraid to spend on what you're trying to do. Don't be afraid to innovate, make those decisions and then figure it out. I had to figure out how to pay for my programs. There were lots of people in my programs that I remember there was a guy that was a dentist. He was just like, yeah, I make 300 grand a year and blah, blah, blah. And he could just write a check and take a week off and just go. It wasn't anything for him to do that. It was something, but it wasn't anything significant. And then there were other people that were like carpenters and roofers and things like that, that they were just like, oh yeah, we could just, I can arrange my schedule. Boom. I can do it. And I'm into it. For me, I was like a construction laborer. I remember one class I took, I had to crawl under somebody's like really old house. They had this like crawl space under there and they wanted me to go under there and insulate under the, between the joists and then put this like plastic sheeting up moisture barrier underneath the house in order to insulate it from the ground and keep the cold from coming up through the floor, which was really needed to be done. But you know what? I had to put like one of those suits on and I had the headlamp on and I had a mask on and it was like a hundred degrees out. And I crawled into this little hole, like one of these windows, and I had to crawl around under there and drag all that stuff around. And meanwhile, there were like raccoons in one corner that were like growling at me. There was like spider webs. There was like dead rats. It was hell. It was literally like out of a horror movie. That's what it felt like at times. I didn't really care. I was in there and I'm like, hey, I'm all covered and I'm going to go in there. And yeah, I'm scared, but I was also excited to just do it. But that I got paid enough to pay for the class. And it was like, I was getting like four bucks an hour. And I was happy to, to, you know, hand my money to Tom Brown and go, teach me some stuff that will help me. And then Tom would just turn around and say, you're going to have to innovate and you're going to have to want it. And you're going to have to get out there and practice because I can teach you the, in five minutes, I can teach you the skill, the concept, and I can teach you the, the technique, but you are going to have to master it. And that means you're going to have to invest. And I would be like, right on brother, let's do it. I was into it, man. You've got to think like your forest school like that, okay? I don't know what your trainings are. you got to think about your nature program. If you're trying to figure out how to get more schools involved, if you're trying to figure out how to get more people in your camp, or you've got to feel that adversity and that pressure and then respond and get creative. And you've got to embrace the discomfort, okay? All of this is... Again, <laughs> there's a flip side to this, which is you can also embrace community and you can do it as a team and you can like just network with people and get the answers that way. You can do it that way too. But sometimes you do have, you need both. Honestly, you need both. If you just try to do it all on your own, you're going to be sad and lonely and it's going to be hard. It's harder. It's harder if you only, I'm not saying the only do this. Okay. I'm not saying only, this is the only way I'm saying embrace those forces and please get out there and keep doing what you do. We need you so badly and you can do it. You can do it. I have seen people that I've seen people make fire that never believed they could make fire. I've seen people do all these things. You can do it. So please go for it and let me know how it goes and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.